He researched all about the Buddha's teachings. Uh, so I used to live with him uh, many years when I was in Michigan Temple. And I learned from him lots. And usually winter time he go away from North America and always is residing in uh, Malaysia, Singapore, that part of the world. You know why. It's too cold here. <laughs> so now uh, November he's leaving again to Malaysia. And so he said, um, one day he called me right after I returned from Malaysia and he said, Oh, I heard you got a new building and new temple. I want to see your temple. I said, that's not enough. You have to give a great Dhamma talk. <laughs> and so he said, okay, sure, I will do that too. He accepted my invitation. Now here he is. I kindly and respectfully, I would like to invite Bhante Purnaji to deliver his speech. Thank you, Well, I'm very happy to see you all. The topic I have been given and I'd like to talk to you about, uh, especially you have been living in this part of the world where you have been taught that this world was created by a God. So that is the topic that I want to talk about. Uh, what I want to point out is that when I look at the dictionary, the word religion, it says it is to believe in one God or many Gods and uh, to worship and pray and all that. And that is the meaning of religion. And Buddhism is a religion where we don't have a thing like that. We don't believe in uh, one God or many Gods and we don't take refuge in the Gods. So that means Buddhism is not a religion. But for the Buddhist, Buddhism is a religion. And uh, so I have been thinking about this from my young days. And only after I became very much older that I began to realize that that is simply a theistic definition of religion that you get in the uh, dictionary. That religion doesn't necessarily mean that you have to believe in gods. That is the important thing. And that means what I call a religion is something very different. That religion is something about the, what Buddha has been talking about. And you may have heard that the Buddha was talking about a thing called suffering. That is also not the exact word that we should be using. The early translators of the teachings of the Buddha use the word suffering. But this is really what I call the insecurity of life. The insecurity of life. You know that all human beings 
are born as babies. Hmm? When you are born, you are a baby. Now the baby is the most insecure person in the world. Now if the parents or the elders or whoever is looking after the baby, doesn't look after the baby, that baby is going to die. That is the insecurity of life. So the baby is being looked after by the mother, father or whoever. And ultimately, when that baby becomes a grown-up child, still that child is insecure. Whenever there is a problem, that child will run to the father or mother. And so the baby thinks the father is a very powerful person or mother is very powerful. And as they grow up, when they begin to become adults, what happens? When there is any difficulty, what happens to that child? Now the child has become an adult. You begin to realize that the parents are as helpless as himself or herself. Now we are can they run? When they are in trouble, where can they run? They still feel insecure. The insecurity is there. So, they only have a problem, insecurity. Now the problem is, our culture, different cultures, have found a solution. And that solution is what is called religion. Religion becomes the solution to this feeling of insecurity. Oh, there, there, there is a God who created the world. We pray to that God and then we'll be secure. Is that the real solution? That is going into a dream world and just feeling secure when there is no real security. It is only a dream. So when people ask, well, when I am having a trouble, even a sickness, or even when I am going to die, who is going to save us? Now I can pray to the Lord, but still I will die. So they will say, don't worry, you go to heaven. God will look after you, you will have eternal life and eternal happiness. Is that the truth? These are all a part of the dream. This is why people like Sigmund Freud who said, religion is a collective neurosis. <laughs> That's what he said. The collective neurosis. And Karl Marx said, is the opium of the masses. You see, this is the problem. That 
didn't have a proper solution. You have heard of Prince Siddhartha who became the Buddha. Now he may have also been taught these things even in India. In Hinduism they had the same concept that this world was created by a God. But Prince Siddhartha was an independent thinker. He didn't just begin to believe whatever the culture said. When he saw an old person, a sick person and a dead corpse, he began to realize that this is not only for one person, all human beings have this same problem. Every human being grows old, falls sick and dies. Not only human beings, even animals, they grow old, fall sick and die. Not only animals, even plants grow old, fall sick and die. Not only these living things, even this building will one day grow old, fall sick and die. Even this whole earth will grow old, fall sick and die. Even the sun and the moon and all the stars. So there is nothing that can survive like this. And he thought, these human beings, being subject to old age, disease and death, they are simply going after things that are subject to old age, disease and death, and therefore they are suffering as a result. No one wants to die. No one wants to grow old. But it happens. There must be a solution, he thought. I want to find the solution. While all other people like to forget this fact and try to enjoy life, he thought that is not the right thing to do. And he saw a monk who has renounced the world. When he saw that, he thought, here is one man who is doing something else. That is the right thing to do. I will also give up this worldly life and I go into the forest and learn to meditate. And he went after the best teachers in meditation who had developed very high levels of meditation. So he went to learn from these people. There were two people, Alara Kalama and Uddhakarama Buddha. He learned everything that he could learn from these people and ultimately he could find the solution. So he thought, I will try these ascetics. Ascetics are people who are trying to uh, suppress all their desires and ultimately uh, keep on practicing all kinds of self-torture and ultimately, he tried, he tried to stop eating, fasting, and he became like a skeleton. But it didn't work. 
So he thought, I will stop breathing. And he tried to stop breathing. And ultimately, he fainted. People thought he was dead. But somehow he woke up and thought, here, all these days, I have been trying to learn from other people. That didn't work. Now I'm going to go my own way. He didn't give up the goal. Although for him, it was a failure. But he didn't give up the goal. And, I re and he remembered that when he was a child, He just relaxed and that's all that he did. And he entered a certain state of mind and body. Then he thought, this is the way, I will do that. And his main thing was to relax. And relax the breathing. And ultimately, he passed through all the things that he learned in meditation. And ultimately, he came to the end. What he mainly realized was, that there was what we call the mind is not another entity separate from the body. <coughs> what we call the mind is an activity of the body. That's the main thing he saw. And when he relaxed all the activities, ultimately this activity stopped. When the activity stopped, there was no mind, there was no consciousness, there was nothing. And then gradually the mind's activity started again. And as the activity started, he began to see that it is through this activity, which we call mind, that we are creating the whole world that we are aware of. And this activity, that is not only creating the world, it is also creating what is called a self. The self is also created by his activity. If that is so, we think the world exists and I exist. Existence itself is a delusion. We think we are existing, but we are not. You know, if we look at the modern scientists or scientific way of thinking, there is a very interesting book that I came across. It is written by a very famous author, Bertrand Russell, the title of that book is The Theory of Relativity, which Einstein was talking about. It's very interesting to read that. Although Einstein was a mathematician, there is a book written by Einstein also about relativity. If you read that, 
If you have not studied mathematics, you will get puzzled. Now here Bertrand Russell is trying to make this thing meaningful to people. And what he is trying to point out is that the world that we are thinking of and even ourselves is all an illusion. So you see, this is what the Buddha realized. You know there is a school of philosophy called existential philosophy. There was this German professor who wrote a book about existence. If you read that book, you will also get confused. The problem is that there is no such thing as existence. And uh, existence itself is an irrational concept. But if it is irrational, how did it come about? It came about as an emotional feeling. We, even if we are fully convinced rationally that there is no such thing as existence, still we feel that we are existing. So the real existence is only a feeling and not a rational concept. So this is what what I call uh, a completely irrational way of thinking. Because existence means occupying space and time. What is existence? Now what is it that occupies space? The only thing referring to myself that occupies space is the body. So if the body is the self, well everyone thinks that this body here is myself. If you want to take a picture of me, you take a camera and take the picture of this body. So we always think this body is the self. Even the government thinks like that because when they want to take a hug, give us an identity card or something, or even a driver's license, they want to take pictures of this body. Now that is occupying space, then what is occupying time? What is time? Time means the past, present and future. Where did the past come from? If we didn't have a memory, do you think we will know about a thing called past? And what is the future? It's all my imagination. Future is something that I imagine. If there is no past, if there is no future, what is the present? Are we talking about this here as the present? Or are we talking about this month as the present? Or are we talking about this day as the present? Or are we talking about this moment as the present? 
even a fraction of a moment is becoming the past. Every fraction of a second, the present is becoming the past. And when it becomes the past, it is, is it there. So we don't really have a past or a present or a future. So what are we calling existence? So this is why it is very important to understand that we are not even existing. That is what Buddha recognized. If we don't exist, how can we die? Death is also a delusion. It is only when we have fully understood this. Now, when we talk about God, what the Buddha pointed out was, God is a human concept. And human beings, that concept is the concept of perfection. And all religions are thinking of perfection. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all these things means perfect in knowledge, perfect in powers, perfect in wisdom, perfect in everything. But that is a human concept which becomes an ideal to be realized. That ideal, when fully realized, is that thing called God. And human beings are ultimately trying to realize that state of perfection through the practice of religion. Religion is an effort to reach that state of perfection. And we believe that it is possible for a human being to reach that state of perfection. Not only possible that human beings do realize this state of perfection from time to time. And when a person has realized that state of perfection is called an awakened one, a Buddha. So Buddha is the real God of the Buddhist. God is the capital G. Now, Buddhists are not people who don't talk about gods. There are three kinds of gods that the Buddhists talk about. Uppati Deva, Samudhi Deva, and Visuddhi Deva. Samudhi Deva simply means God by convention. People believe the sun is a god or the moon is a god or so many things, gods, these are God by convention. Then there is another kind of God who is supposed to be living in heaven. A person who is occupying this world called heaven, that is the God or angel or whatever you call it. And, uh, the other God is a God by purity of mind. A person whose mind is pure and perfect in purity. So the Buddha becomes a God that way. Not only the Buddha, the, all the disciples who practice the teachings of the Buddha and purify the mind in this way who are called Arahants. So this way, it is the human being who ultimately becomes God. And this is what I call a humanistic religion. Buddhism is not a theistic religion, neither monotheistic or polytheistic. Buddhism is a humanistic religion which is talking about a human 
problem and trying to solve the human problem. So I think I have been saying enough. So you can, if you have any questions to ask, you can ask. So please raise your hand so then we can pass the microphone. <coughs> Yes, there. No, please, use the mic. So, uh, Bhante, you say the, uh, that Buddhism isn't a uh, theistic religion, but... You, I don't or, hear you properly. I'm sorry, you say that the, uh, Buddhism isn't a theistic religion? Yeah. But you also say that it's not a, an atheistic, atheistic religion uh -huh. also, right? So, let me see if I can, <laughs> let me see what I'm going to try to, try to uh, get the question I want on. So basically, Buddhism isn't uh, based on a belief of any type, but what we come to see, right? So we either don't, we, we, we neither believe nor we don't believe, right? I didn't uh, understand properly what you said. Yeah. That's a, I can only guess. Bikuni will explain. He said, so we don't, don't huh? believe, we don't believe, or huh? we don't disbelieve. Oh, in Buddhism, there is no belief in Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion without dogmas. There is no dogmatism in Buddhism. It is like a science where... Now, if, you, if a scientist says, if you put uh, uh, hydrochloric acid and sodium hydroxide, you get salt, sodium chloride. You don't have to believe that. You have to put that together and find out for yourself. So Buddhism is a thing like that. There are no beliefs in Buddhism, but Buddha has been saying this and that. But you have to find out for yourself. It's something that you have to experiment and do it and find out. Now, if you say you, when you die you will be reborn somewhere else, you don't have to believe that. Find out for yourself, which means purify your mind, you can recall your past life. So that way, these are certain powers that a human being could reach and ultimately you can verify for yourself. So it's not based on belief. Any more nice, questions? Huh? Okay, microphone. So in in other religions, huh? in other religions, yeah. people pray to God or petition God if they want help with something, if somebody's sick, to give them comfort. In Buddhism, do people petition Buddha for that or ask Buddha to help? And is, is that appropriate? Or yeah, in Buddhism, we don't pray to anyone. We don't have what is called prayer. So, but we, we have what we call worship. Now the word worship is not prayer. Worship means recognizing the worth of someone or something. Worship. So that we worship the Buddha, but we don't pray to the Buddha. We don't ask for help. But we take refuge in the Buddha. To take refuge means to ask for help. Now if you are sick and you go to the doctor, that is taking refuge. But uh, prayer means 
you are asking for help, please help me. So you are not trying to get help from other people by praying to them. So we don't pray to the gods or any supernatural beings. Everything is based on natural things. There is nothing supernatural in Buddhism. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Abante, you, uh, you seem to be, um, the impression I get is you're, you're both a man of religion and a man of uh, science. And uh, my question is, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on the great concept of evolution, how uh, man developed uh, from very low forms of life? Is that, how does that fit into your framework of um, all of this? I didn't uh, understand. Yeah. What do you think of evolution? And how does evolution... Ah, evolution. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Buddhism, if you really want to understand Buddhism, you have to understand evolution. <laughs> yes. Because, you see, I don't have the time to go through that whole thing, but in a very short way I will say that according to the modern theory of evolution, Charles Darwin started this thing. And what he found was that what we call life, is really a chemical process. A special kind of molecule came into being just based on what is called determinism. Determinism means that everything that happens in this world happens only when the necessary conditions are present. That is the meaning of determinism. Now, the Buddha spoke about determinism long before people in the West came to know about determinism. Because there is a period in the history of the Western civilization called the Age of Enlightenment. That is in the 18th century. Till the 18th century, there was no such thing as science. So when science came into being, they began to realize that everything that happened in the world happens not because of gods or devils, it happened only when the necessary conditions are present, like an earthquake or hurricane. All these things are not done by gods and devils but by this thing called determinism. So it is when the necessary conditions are present, a new kind of molecule came into being. And this molecule was able to absorb atoms from the surroundings and produce new molecules of its own kind. That is where life started. Life means producing new things. It's the reproduction. And not only that, there was another natural law that everything that is integrated is subject to disintegration. Everything, everything is atoms and molecules. These are formed by things coming together and they also separate. So there were two processes going on. One is, one is building up process and the other is the breaking down process. Both are going on at the same time. So building up process and a breaking down process going on at the same time if the building up process is faster than the breaking down process, the net result 
is what we call growth. <coughs> growth is that. But when the breaking down process becomes faster than the building up process, the net result is what we call decay, which ends in death. Now these two processes going on at the same time is what is today called metabolism. So the building up process is called anabolism and the breaking down process is called catabolism. Together is called metabolism. So this process that is going on started this thing called life and Charles Darwin looked at this oh he saw it as a struggle for existence that is what he called the struggle for existence it is only a struggle that is going on but no real existence because it is breaking down and when he thought of this, he saw it as a struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest. But it's not a real survival because even the fittest has to die someday. So there, what he saw was only an adaptation to the environment. That adaptation to the environment is what went on changing these things. And that is how evolution took place. Evolution was a gradual change that is going on. But the struggle for existence is the only thing that is continuing. Because everything comes to destruction. So ultimately, this thing, this process of evolution created a thing called a brain. A brain was created. First what is called a nervous system and the nervous system grew up into a brain and the brain also began to evolve until the human being came into being. And there is a special part of this brain, of the human being, that is called the cerebrum. And that is that part that was able to do this thing called thinking and logical thinking. And the activity of this brain produced this thing called science. And now you know this thing called science has done wonderful things. And it is this ability to think that ultimately became aware of the whole problem that is going on. This thing called evolution and a struggle for existence going on without a real existence. So before you die, you produce children and the children begin to grow and then they also begin to produce more children and so the thing goes on but there is no real existence, everyone is going to die. So this is what the Buddha saw. The Buddha was also part of this whole process of evolution but the human being ultimately comes to a point where the human being begins to understand this problem and ultimately stops this struggle. Because the continuation of the struggle is what is called the suffering. And uh, that becomes the end 
of this process of evolution. So the Buddha is really one who has reached the end of this process of evolution, which is continuing, which is a continuation which is not achieving the goal, which is the goal is to keep on existing. Really, there is no existence. <coughs> so, this is the important thing to understand. Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah. we will give one more question to this side. Yeah. Then, after that is over, I will explain to you what is happening more tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would like to say greetings to Bhante. Namaste. Uh, what's that? Namaste to you. Greetings. Huh? She said, she said, greetings. Greetings. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try one more time. I was saying greetings to you. Uh, ah, thank you. <laughs> um, it's really nice seeing you. A uh, lot of inspiration for me. Uh, I was going to ask you about, not about religion, I was going to ask you about anger. But then I think I'm going to ask you about the importance of Sangha. Would you talk a little bit about what Sangha really gives us? What's the gathering like this gives me? Would, would it help me with my anger? She has a two questions. Sangha gives anger. Anger. Sangha, anger. <laughs> two things. Huh? Two things. Two things. Ah. Two questions. Talk about anger. Well, the question is supposed to be about anger and the another question about Sangha. Sangha. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, anger is simply an emotion that is aroused. And how to overcome anger has become a problem. Uh, according to Sigmund Freud, anger is a natural thing that is what is called an instinct, natural thing that you cannot get rid of. The only way is to somehow found, find a way of uh, expressing that anger in a socially acceptable way. And that is what we call sublimation. But there was a later school of psychology that came up called cognitive psychology. Now this cognitive psychology is pointed out, it is true that anger is something built into the system. That is true, but it is like Dynamite. You know, dynamite contains all the explosives inside that. But if you don't bring a spark of some fire into it, there will be nothing happening. So in a similar way, all the anger inside, it can happen. That means the anger can be aroused, but it can be aroused only if we interpret our circumstances in a certain way. That is what is called the cognitive process. That the cognitive process starts the emotional arousal. So if we can change the way we interpret our circumstances, there will be no anger. And that is something that the Buddha has been talking about more than 2,500 years before. In the first verse, in what is, there is a book called the Dhammapada, a collection of verses. And the first verse in the Dhammapada says, Mano Pubangama Dhamma. Mano means we have two 
parts of our mind. One is the thinking part and the other is the emotional part. So it is the thinking part that starts this emotional arousal. If we think in the wrong way, we'll be emotionally excited and we'll start expressing this anger and all the problems come up. But if we begin to think in the right way, no anger will come up. This is the first verse in that book that sums up the whole thing. So anger. And now about the Sangha. Sangha here means the community of disciples of the Buddha who are practicing the teachings of the Buddha. And it is this community that carries the Dhamma, which is the teaching of the Buddha, to the world, not only into the present, also into the future. So it is only as long as the Sangha is present in the world, the Dhamma will remain in the world. And into the future, there will be a time when there will be no Dhamma at all. After a long time, another Buddha will come up. Uh, one person who will ultimately reach that state of perfection and begin to preach the Dhamma to the world. So there so this is, it comes only in uh, periodically. <coughs> it won't remain forever. So this is the important thing to understand about this Sangha. Huh? Okay, thank you so much uh, Bhante Purnaji. Uh, so today we had a good time in listening to his uh, great wisdom. May the power of Triple Gem, Buddha and Dhamma uh, be upon him. Uh, so may, be, uh, may he will uh, have good health and long life as uh, we bow to him.